0: Good. I'm not feeling well, so if I look weird up here at any moment, uh, just know I'll probably recover and I'll be fine. But last service, I lost my place a few times, but I think I can make it through this service. So I get to preach this passage. You're like, wow, what a vote of confidence. My name's Josh. I'm one of the teaching team members along with Luke and Seth, and I get to unpack this passage for you. I want to ask you a question just to kick us off. Who's the most organized person you know? I'm not going to, how many of you guys would say, it's your spouse? That's me. Hey guys, one of your parents is the most organized person you know. How many of you would say, I am the most organized person I know? Oh, wow. So my wife is very organized. She likes to let me in on my lack of organization this way. She does it very cute, cutely, if that's a word. I'll be doing something in the house, and she'll say, we are so different. That's just her way to say, (laughs) there's an organized way to do this, and then there's your way. There's peanut butter on the ceiling, there's jelly everywhere. There's a better way to have three little boys make their school lunches. There's the organized Aubrey way, and then there's whatever this whole thing is. So uh, here's the question leading into this message, and kind of what this passage is going to be all about. How organized is God? Someone would want to say, well, he's God, so he's the most organized. Obviously, he's got got it all figured out. And then you're like, ah. Because here's one of the things I've heard from lots of people, which is just interesting. One of my former barbers as a Jehovah's Witness, he says, one of the knocks against the Christian church, us, is how different all the churches are. Because he says, I can go to Morocco, I can go to... Uh, South America. I can go across the globe and the Jehovah's Witness place I show up to worship is the exact same as what I get here in the Valley of the Sun. And yet you Bible-believing, born again, whatever you call yourselves, followers of Jesus, you go to Redemption Gateway on a Sunday and you're going to get some announcements and maybe communion, maybe not, and you're going to get somebody teaching. But if you were to drive 1.2 miles that way and go to the next Christian church, you're going to get something far different. It seems like The God behind all that seems to be kind of disorganized. And people have a real problem with, how do I make sense of that? And here's the reality. God is the most organized being in the universe. And he's also not annoying. And he doesn't overplay his hand. And he allows for freedom where there needs to be freedom. And that's kind of what we see in this passage is... Just to get you caught up to speed, Exodus is this epic book in the Bible. It's wonderful. It's full of the, some of the greatest stories Christianity has to offer, and even our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, the best stories they have to offer. And it starts off with this people group, the Israelites, stuck in a land that's not their own. And they become slaves, and they grow to this huge number, about 2.5 billion, some people say, in Egypt. And then they get rescued out of Egypt by the hand of God through the person of Moses. And now this is where we're at in the story. Now Moses is kind of trekking along with 2.5 people in tow on their way to a better life. Where? We'll figure it out as we go. But is where we're at right now in the story. And that's what we're looking at now is this is the first time in the history of the people of God. Because so if you look at Genesis, it's all kind of family tribal stuff. But now it's actually a lot of people. Okay, how are we going to organize this thing? It's, see, there's a, lot, there's a lot of people here. What, what are we going to do with this? And that's kind of what we see. Chapter 18 is God starting to organize the people of God. And that's what we're going to look at. And all, all I have is five principles I gather from this text. Um, some will be really helpful. Some of them you'll be like, eh, I don't know. But th- that's what we're looking at is God starting to organize his people. So let's bow and pray and ask God to meet us here this morning. Father, be with us this morning. We love you, we thank you for your word that is sometimes epic and grand, and sometimes logical and organized, and yet it's always your word. Whenever you speak, we should listen. So God, as we gather to hear from you through this book, I pray that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that you would be our God through your word in this moment by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here's the big idea for this morning. Very simply, for God to be known vertically, his people must organize horizontally. If 2.5 million Jews are going to know God vertically, there has to be some horizontal organization going on. If however many Christians are there across the globe are going to know God vertically, there has to be some organization horizontally. That's the big idea. If we're going to know God vertically, we have to have some sort of organization horizontally. So like I said, I've got five principles. We're just going to walk through them out of this text here this morning. Here's the first one. We organize, but not to the exclusion of those outside. Meaning God did not tell his people to organize in such a way to where there'd be boundaries between them and the outside world. There's a pursuit of holiness we must have, but we are not the people setting up boundaries so that no one else on the outside can get in. That's not what God's about. You can even see it right out of the gate here. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 1 there. And we get reintroduced to this character who showed up earlier in this story, but his name's Jethro. Let's just read verse 1 here. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father in law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So again, this is kind of a weird, all these epic salvation moments have happened, and now Israel's on the march, and then there's this random encounter with this guy, Jethro, who's a Midianite. And you're like, how is that? Who are the Midianites? If you read back in Genesis, Genesis 25, Abraham is the father of the faith. He has a few wives, and he has a few concubines, which is kind of normative in the Old Testament. It's never okay, but that's just how it went. And Midianites are children from his concubines. Even, there's even a sad verse here, verse 5 of Genesis 25. You don't need to turn there, but it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, chosen one. In our house, would be Aubrey and Josh gave everything to Ozzy, their chosen precious son. But to the other sons, to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to an eastern country. So Jethro is this descendant of Abraham's great, 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 that had been sent away because their mother was a concubine. And then he shows back up on the scene. That's just an interesting encounter. The people of God who have been rescued by the hand of Yahweh are on the march and then knock, knock, knock. A second cousin, twice removed from way back when, is here. And it's just a beautiful picture that God's people can never lose sight of outsiders, which is so easy to do. Two reasons why I think this passage is here. The first one is it contrasts with the passage that came prior. Seth preached last week, and one of the little kind of mini stories he told in his sermon was about the Amalekites. And they came to fight Israel. 17 verse 8 says, then Amalek came and fought with Israel. And then 18 verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, shows up, and then there's this really sweet interaction. And I think this is here poetically to show the people of God that as we go, as we gather, even as we organize as the people of God, we're always going to be facing outsiders. And some are coming to fight, and some are like Jethro and are open to hear what we have to say. That's the reality of being the people of God. We are always facing outsiders. The second thing that I think is just super interesting about this is the timing of this. Like we said, Israel has been rescued. The Red Sea was parted. They walk through. God crashed down the Red Sea upon the Egyptians. They turn around and they go, what the? Wow. And then they go on the march. We're going to listen to this Yahweh and this guy Moses. And they're on the, man, that's crazy. And as they're marching towards Mount Sinai, this random encounter, Jethro, the Midianite. I think it's just a reminder to us that we don't get to choose when God intersects our life with that of outsiders, non-Christians. Like, here's a way to get at kind of our natural flinch in this room. We'll see if you guys answer the same way as the first service. How many of y'all like pop in? Visitors, raise your hand. The six Christians in the room like pop in. We just wonder why this world sucks. And a room full of church people don't like people showing up to their house. Is that ironic to anyone? Nobody likes pop ins anymore. I don't know what's changed. I love pop ins. I got a pop in yesterday. Linda Hankins on the door with cinnamon rolls. It was beautiful. If it's the CenturyLink guy selling stuff I don't want, I like it. If it's the Mormon kid showing up to tell me about their faith, I love it. I love a good poppin'. My wife does not. She's working on it. Here's the reality of being a Christian. The way God is going to work in our life is with a lot of little poppins. We don't get to choose when the Spirit's going to intersect our life with the life of another who needs to hear the good news of Jesus that we have. Moses is on the move. He's got 2.5 million people in tow, and he gets a pop-in visitor. It's just kind of poetic how God puts us here. And how does he treat this outsider? Let's read. Go to verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that He had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Picture your father-in-law, or mother-in-law in your head. In your next encounter, you bowed down and kissed them. That's beautiful. And super convicting. But how does Moses interact with outsiders? He bows down and he kisses them. He shows respect. The book of Colossians, which is a book in the New Testament, would say this to us. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious. seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Me and my wife do a lot of premarital counseling and then kind of follow-up counseling. And one of the things that wives, as they become moms, have to learn to deal with now is this reality of, we we use the term hats. You wear lots of different hats now. You always have, but motherhood is an intense hat. It's like this hat that you can't ever take off now. Amen, mothers? Like, you are just in mom mode. It's like mom mode, mom mode, mom mode, mom mode, mom mode. And it's hard to just enjoy being, oh, I'm still just a person? Yes. And here's what I see with Christians, especially as they progress in the faith and they kind of get comfortable, for lack of a better term, is they become wearing insider hats. And they just kind of forget that this thing doesn't make sense to most people. Like just, here's what we do. Once a week, we show up here to sing songs that are mostly about blood. <laughs> What's the best part of your week? Showing up with 500 or so people and singing about blood? That's the best part of my week. And yet, if I'm thinking about outsiders and friends in my neighborhood, and people on my kids' baseball team, the more I have this Christian head on, the harder it is to put myself in their shoes, which is the biblical definition of love. We must love outsiders. We must be aware of outsiders. We must treat outsiders with respect, especially in our speech. I just want to list a few environments for you to be aware of, to be thinking about. How is your online presence for outsiders? As outsiders come to your online presence, you've created via Facebook if you're a boomer, Instagram if you're a millennial, or Snapchat if you're Gen Z. Whatever it is, wherever you fall, we all got our pockets, an outsider would say what about the Jesus you serve? Or they'd be too clouded with political bickering. What does your online presence say to outsiders? How about this? Are you prepared on Sunday for outsiders to be present here? One of my favorite things as a pastor is to have someone come up to me before I preach and say, hey, so-and-so is here. Just so you know, and there's kind of a nervousness. They're not used to church, they're not a Christian. Just, they're kind of saying, don't be weird and Christian. (laughs) Done. What about your family? This is an interesting one. Family gatherings. We just had a bunch of our boys' friends over, and I still want to pray, and I still want to honor the Lord in my home, and yet I want to do it in such a way that my kids don't seem like the weird church kids, because I want to be aware of outsiders while still honoring the Lord who I love dearly you say, man, that's a lot of work. Like, I just want to stop thinking about it. I, I want a place where I don't have to think about that. I think that's the new heavens and the new earth. And I think there are places where you don't have to think about as much. But I think there's a few spots where you could be more aware of outsiders. Because as God gathers his people and starts to organize his people, he's always Always pointing to the outsider and reminding us, you are here for the sake of the nations, Israel. Don't forget Jethro. Church, don't forget the outsider. You are here for the sake of the outsider. Here's the second thing we see we organize because we are not a one man show. One commentator calls this chapter, Exodus chapter 18, the the hinge point of the book of Exodus. He says, before this, Israel were passive recipients of God's work. And from this moment on, they're going to be active participants in dispersing the knowledge of God to the people of Israel and the nations looking in on them. This is the lynch point. This is where it changes from God working through Moses to now God is going to disperse his spirit through other people. Let's just read this together. Verse 13, go to that one. This is what we read a moment ago. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? I love this interaction because it's so just how you would expect it to happen. Why was it set up this way? Why was Moses the the key person doing all the work in this moment? As I read through this text and wrestled with it all week, I've come up with two answers. One's fairly negative. The other one's pretty neutral. But the negative answer to this is this is how Pharaoh led. Moses sat under Pharaoh's leadership for decades and decades. This is what he knew. Egypt had, they looked to Pharaoh for everything. He was the man. He was the God. He was the one who thus saith Pharaoh and thus it goes. Moses doesn't have any other leadership styles to bank on. He doesn't have anything else in his mental memory bank to go back on and say, oh, I remember that one time. He's used to a country where they look to one person as the person to be above all and supreme over all things. So now the people of God are gathering. Problems arise. What do we do? They get in line, and they line up to Moses. Moses, here's my problem. My brother's an idiot. Well, tell me about this. Next. My wife wants a divorce. Tell me about it. Next. So I think the negative way is this is the only leadership style he's ever seen. Here's the other one. Look at verse uh, 15. I love this because it's it's kind of a cute answer Moses gives. Jethro's like, dude, what are you doing, man? 2.5 million, one you. This makes no sense. Verse 15. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God. What's Moses' reason as to why he's doing this? Well, because they're bringing me their problems. So I'm trying to help them. Is that bad, Jethro? I just love the like, why is it like this? Well, because there's problems and people are showing up to Moses' door. Some of you are Moses' like you're the person that always says yes to trying to fix people's problems. So you have a line. And someone would ask you, "Why is it this? Why is it like this?" And your answer would be, "Well, because people keep coming to me to fix their problems." Like there's a not a huge malicious intent behind that. There's just kind of a lack of wisdom. And here's what I took from this just for my own heart. Some of us have Huge cultural habits that we need to be aware of as we head into church life in the gathering of the saints. We live in a capitalistic society, nothing wrong with that, but we come in here, we got to check ourselves on some of that. Some of us are strong leaders and we're out in the workforce and we are getting stuff done and we are knocking down walls and we come in here and that edge doesn't work so well talking to a guy who's dealing with all these counseling situations, he says, this thing I'm seeing all across the board with a lot of husbands is the thing that helps them kill it out there is the thing that is destroying their marriage in here. They get stuff done and they go hard and they knock through problems and then they get in their house and they try to solve problems with those same tools and it's causing problems. Romans would tell us this, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As the people of God gather, there's cultural residue that all of us bring in here, and we need to collectively kind of say, like Jethro, why do we do it this way? And does it line up with the spirit of God and his word? The other thing I would say is some of us have Moses-like tendencies, the worst way to say it is a savior complex. The best way to say it is you like to help people. Somewhere on that spectrum, you fall and you are going to burn out in life, or you have burned out, or you are not going to be able to make it past another couple months. And you should remember Moses gets called out by Jethro, and the problem gets solved through a little bit of delegation. We are in this together. In fact, if you fast forward Numbers 11, God gets more specific. Moses appoints more elders. He says, "Point 70 elders. And there's this beautiful image. He says, Moses, come to me. I'm going to take spirit from you. I'm going to take my spirit from you, and I'm going to disperse it on the 70 so that you guys can carry this load together. And you start to see a little glimpse of what the church is. And then fast forward a few, 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 few more books in the Bible, and you go to Acts. And Acts says, they're waiting for God to move. And then the Spirit falls down on them, and it says this, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Every last one of them. What is the church? It is the place where the people filled with the Holy Spirit gather. And some of those that are filled with the Holy Spirit have leadership gifts like Moses, and they're going to get influence and praise. But 99% of us don't have leadership gifts that are ever going to get us in front of 100 people or thousands of people, or even dozens of people. But we need to remember that we are filled with the Holy Spirit if we are followers of Jesus, and we are all in this together. Bill Anderson is one of our lay elders, and he taught a parenting night we put on a few years ago, and I remember this thing he said that has always stuck with me. It was a parenting night about how to parent teens. Like, how do you deal with your teenagers? You know, the thing all parents of teens wanna know. How do I do this? and nobody really knows, but Bill Anderson said this. Here's what you need to remember. The Holy Spirit inside your teenager is the exact same Holy Spirit inside you. Too many parents lose sight of that. And there's constant like, nee, 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 nee. When you're talking to a person, if they're a follower of Jesus, that has the exact same Holy Spirit inside them that you do. And as we gather as the church, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has gifted us all uniquely, and we must remember that so we don't fall in the trap of becoming a one-man show like a Moses, or being a spectator thinking, ah, the gifts I have aren't Moses enough. Moses need to learn this lesson. We need to learn this lesson. Here's a question I have for you just to think through. Do you struggle with being a one-man show on the way to burnout, or do you struggle with being a spectator? This passage speaks to both those. Here's the third thing we see. We organize within clear commands and creatively in areas of freedom. What do I mean by this? Let me just, we talked to the beginning. God is an organized God. And yet he kind of picks his spots where he's going to speak into the organization of something explicitly. And then other times, like a good parent, he kind of steps back and he kind of lets whatever's going to form form. He might add a little kind of cushioning and moving. But that's what we see in this passage. I want to show you just the extreme of one of these. If you have Exodus there, fast forward, move over to Exodus 26 in your Bibles there. I want to read just a couple verses to give you a flavor of how God could have spoke in this passage, yet chose not to. So Exodus 26, we'll be there in a couple weeks. I think Luke's going to preach that. But it's about the tabernacle. It's the place where God is going to dwell for the people of God in the Old Testament. And I just want to read two verses or so. 26 verse one. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits And the breadth of each curtain, four cubits, and all the curtains shall be the same size. It goes on and on and on. How is the tabernacle to be made? God says, this is exactly how I want you to do it. He doesn't leave anything up for the imagination. Now go back to Exodus 18. The people of God are ready to organize. It's time to get our stuff together. How are we going to do this? is my Jehovah's Witness friend onto something like Christians are too disorganized they should have more of a centralized theme and method and system Exodus 18 go to verse 19 Let me just remind you this is Jethro speaking not God So the tabernacle is being built God speaks directly to Moses with like 18,000 instructions that only the quilting club members really like to read about The people of God are being organized for the first time in their history, and God lets Jethro, an outsider, speak some wisdom into Moses to create the first organizational structure of this thing. It's just interesting. Verse 19, now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, uh, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Notice the contrast. God speaks so clearly in one area. And then this area of organization of what's essentially the first gathering of churches. How are we going to structure this? He lets Jethro speak into it. Sometimes God's so clear. The only thing that, uh, verse, where does it say? Verse 21, moreover, look for able men. The only specific that kind of still holds throughout all of scripture is whenever God's gathering his people, he usually restricts some offices to men, but not just men in general, men of high character, highest character. And that's the only thing in this that kind of sticks with us throughout scripture if you follow the theme of God's people. But everything else is like, kind of loosely based on the culture. Even the numbers there, he says, put them in thousands or hundreds or fifties or tens. Those aren't like Hebrew holy numbers. He doesn't use the number 12 or seven. Those are military numbers. He's like, gather them kind of like the military's gathered. Put them in thousands or hundreds and put a captain over each. It's just interesting, why does God do that? I have a quote here from a guy named John Bloom. He says this, I think one very important reason why God is silent is he understands how influential he is. And he does not intend the vast majority of our methods or systems to be considered sacred. So even if he approves of them, he does not endorse them. So as we look at the people of God being organized for the first time in their history, God is wisely silent in a lot of key areas. Why? Because he knows how influential he is. He knows the moment he speaks directly, they're gonna to try to make it sacred and stamp it as eternal, and yet he lets them gather, he lets them organize in a way that fits their culture. Same thing for the churches today. He has some specific things to say, but by and large, he gives so much freedom to us on how we organize our mission in this world. So much freedom. Here's the, I kind of came up with a question for myself, and I'll, you'll go through them in your RCs this week, but here's a question I have for you right now. How have you creatively organized yourself, your life, for the sake of mission? We all have unique seasons. We got every age group in here. We got kids in school. We got retired folks. We've got people in the throes of young parenting. Based off your season of life and the fact that God has not spoken edicts onto you this is exactly how you're to set up your life but he's left so much room for freedom how have you prayerfully sought the spirit to creatively be on mission in how God has shaped your life for the season that's what it means to be people of God to be on mission creatively he's not going to lay out step by step by step here's what every person has to do he gives tons of areas for freedom here's the fourth thing we see we organize so that we all can know God more fully. Go to verse 24. Moses agrees to what Jethro says, he doesn't fight him. He says, ah, sounds like a good idea. Verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. So Moses chose those able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, tens, and they judged the people at all times. In any hard case they brought to Moses, but in any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. I love this section because the last few weeks it seems like whether it's Seth or Luke whoever's been preaching, it's been a lot of grumbling from the people of God. Like Seth taught last week and there was like nine mentions of complaining or grumbling. There's wah, 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 wah. And then you get to chapter 18 and there's no grumbling, no complaining. What you see is a bunch of people gathering, seeking Moses, and then seeking the people that have been appointed now. Tell me what to do in this situation. The word behind that word judged is justice. Tell me what's the just thing to do here. And that's just such a sweet picture of what life in the church is. A bunch of people gathering, helping each other out, What's the just thing to do for me here? What should I do in this situation? We don't all have the answers. I wrote down a few. How do I parent this teenager right now who refuses to listen to me? Those are the sort of questions they were bringing to them. How do I run this business justly when all of my competition is cutting corners left and right? Not complaining, just, I want, what's what's the Christian way to do this right now? What's the most just and loving way to take care of my aging parents? And that's kind of what the rest of the book is about, is the people of God getting around, trying to figure out how to do life together. And what's interesting is it takes up most of the time. Like that get out of Egypt moment was like, and they're like, yeah, that was great. And then they spend the next Umpteen years trying to figure out how to do basics of life. There's a quote that gets at this. As it turns out, freedom from serving Pharaoh is the easy bit. From beginning to end, it takes 14 chapters. Freedom to serve God, on the other hand, takes 40 years of wandering in the next four books of the Bible. How does God save a people like that? How does God shape a people with book after book after book? because we are slow and clumsy people. And we don't always get it the first time. But we wanna know God more deeply and that's what it means to be the life of the church. Here's the last point. We organize without losing the beauty of what we're actually about. Those of you who love organization like my wife and those of you that are really good at it, some of you, my wife doesn't do this, but some of you can be the buzzkill in situations. Like we wanna have a party and we want it to be organized. And the organizational master can often drown out the fun stuff. And as we look at this chapter that's mostly about the people of God trying to figure out organization, I don't wanna lose sight of the fact that the, at the heart of being a Christian, at the heart of the people of God is beauty. And here's a question I have for you. If you had just one painting, God gave you one painting, one picture to illustrate Christianity to a watching world, what would you choose for your painting? And let's just be harsh and say you can't use a cross. How many of you guys would choose organized religion? This this would be my painting right here. A bunch of people in rows looking up at a stage. That's what Christianity is about, right there. How many of you guys would choose a big not sign? Everything Christianity is against. Like, what would be the picture you would use to illustrate Christianity? How I many you guys would use people picketing outside of various cultural events that certain Christians have strong, strong methods towards? Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, and he uses the book of Exodus throughout his book, and he narrowed it down to three beautiful things. He says, the book of Exodus is about shaping the people of God, and God shapes a people with three things, a story of deliverance, a song of praise, and a meal, and that's how God shapes his people. What's Christian about? It's about a story, it's about a song, and it's about a meal. Where do we see a meal in here? Go to verse 11. I skipped over this, but this is Jethro after he meets with Moses. I just love that God has this in there to remind us. Don't forget what Christianity, what following the Lord is about. Verse 11, Jethro had heard everything that the Lord had done, and this is his response. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father in law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father in law before God. What is Christianity about? It's about a meal. It's about a table that none of us deserve to be sitting at, but the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, has invited us to the table with him. And we get to enjoy his presence, his provision, his protection for eternity. Why? Because we're so great? No, because he is so gracious and kind. And now we as the people of God organize to make that God known. And we remind ourselves that this is about a table. So here's my last question before I head out. If we were to judge your Christianity in your home based off who's been to your table, how would that look? Should you read your Bible and pray and all these Christian disciplines? Absolutely. But if we just narrowed it down to a table, a meal between insiders and outsiders, what does your Christianity look like? Because remember, the God we serve was the ultimate outsider. He was the creator. We were the created. He was the holy one. We were the unholy. He was righteous. We were not righteous. He was eternal. We were finite. And he came down and invited us to a meal with him. That's what this is about. We are about a meal with the king. And now we get to invite others to the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your wisdom. Got to think of my own parenting and all the ways I see shortcomings when I compare it with how you interact with us. I speak too often, I speak too declaratively, I don't ask enough questions, and yet I come to your word and I see you interact with your people, and you do it so perfectly. You give specific, clear instructions when it's necessary, and yet you give freedom. And you watch your people grow and develop, and you interject yourself where you need to. It's just beautiful, God. So thank you for your word that shows us what you're like, that we get to learn about you, just even this little interaction between Jethro and Moses and the people of God that you are so wise and all-knowing, and yet you don't use your wisdom and your sovereignty to insert yourself into everything. You are perfect. You always hit your spot. You always speak at the right moment. So God, I pray that we would listen to you. We would hear from you. Your spirit would speak. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for this book that's been formative and shaping for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.